0: The real threat for whistleblowers is not, oh, i am I going to make $5 million if I blow the whistle? Oh, I'm not. Oh, darn. It's not. It's not the lack of a positive. It's the great uh, chance for a ton of negative.
1: Whistleblowing. And oftentimes, necessary action with unfortunate consequences. Someone from within an organization points out a gross transgression or wrongdoing within the organization. And then what happens? Do we thank them for it? Quite the opposite, Usually. And why is this? Why this conflict towards whistleblowers, when someone on the outside might perceive them as, well, a good guy? How can we change the dynamic in the interest of transparency? And what implications does the recent Me Too movement have on our attitude towards whistleblowing? What if I wanted to blow the whistle? What should I do? I've got a lot of questions today, and hyperlink contributor Ray Sylvester has a lot of thoughtful answers. Our conversation today drives pretty deep so buckle up.
0: Hyperlink is hyperlink. Hyperlink is to describe the instant connection connection information, information. No. No,
1: Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Hyperlink Radio, Episode 3. I'm today's host, David Grabowski. Hyperlink Radio is a biannual series of podcast episodes that explores how we connect with each other, with our technology, and with the world around us. We are proudly produced by Winning Edits, which publishes the biannual magazine Hyperlink. Find us online at winningedits.com and get the latest episodes of Hyperlink Radio by subscribing via iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or RSS. Visit hyperlinkradio.io to learn more. Again, that's hyperlinkradio.io. Today, I am talking with Ray Sylvester about the phenomenon of whistleblowing. This was a topic Ray tackled in a feature article in the most recent issue of Hyperlink Magazine in October. Uh, you can pick up a copy by going to hyperlinkmag.com, and you can also read the full article for free on our Medium channel at medium.com slash hyperlink-mag. Please welcome Ray Sylvester to the show. Ray, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, David. It's good, uh, good to be chatting with you today.
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so let's get started with the basics. What exactly is
0: a whistleblower? Good question. Um, well, uh, a whistleblower is a person. So um, that's that's the first the first uh, the first part. Uh, but it's and this is this is a term that that probably a lot of people have heard and mm-hmm. probably understand to some degree. Um, but what I did with with my research for this article was really try to understand. Um, just the phenomenon of whistleblowing. Um, I think we all have a basic understanding of what it means to blow the whistle, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second, but, um, I really wanted to dive into, to understand just culturally, socially, um, what this phenomenon means. And so, anyway, to get back to your question. And what um, do you mean
1: by phenomenon, just real quick?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, there is, uh, the phenomenon of whistleblowing. I think there is, <laughs> it's a very, it exists in a very particular space, um, culturally and when it comes to human nature and the way that, uh, we interact and relate in in groups and organizations and, uh, okay. and how we treat someone who goes against the grain or goes against the social order. Um, Got it. So yeah, so backtracking a little bit um, just to give kind of a basic definition of a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whistleblower is a person who uh, takes on a significant personal risk and, and potential cost um, by uncovering or essentially blowing the whistle on um, what they consider to be some sort of injustice or wrongdoing within an organization of which they are a part the, to which they belong. So this could be, uh, for instance, uh, a worker in a, in a government department, uh, an employee at a company, a startup, uh, It could be a member of a church. Um, it's someone who's a part of the fabric of a particular company or organization um, and whose social standing, who's, maybe whose livelihood is connected to, is reliant upon their, their membership in that organization. Hmm. but there's someone who has seen or experienced something that they consider to be morally or ethically troublesome. And, uh, they, to them, it's, it, it's something that they need to, uh, to notify the world about that something needs to be done about this, about this, this wrongdoing. So hmm. whether so it's they're a tattling boss, essentially, basically, yeah. Um, they're blowing the whistle. They're, they're making known what's, what's happening behind the scenes. That's maybe not so good. Um, so this could be, you know, your boss who's laundering money or, you know, sexual abuse that's being covered by higher ups in the, in the, in the church, uh, what have you. Um, so the whistleblower and, is the person who who steps forward and decides, OK, I'm going to take on the role, the risk of um, of standing up for what I believe is right and lift the veil on this injustice that other people are not addressing when this within this organization.
1: And, and who are they usually blowing the whistle to? Is it someone within the organization or, or someone outside of the organization?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it can be, it can be uh, different. Uh, you know, it could be, it could be the media. Um, sometimes it is within the organization. Uh, that is often the first step that a lot of whistleblowers take is to go to some internal um, entity that, uh, that they think they can trust. And that can be tricky. That can cause problems, too. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. Um, a lot of the whistleblower cases that we hear about, uh, in the news, uh, we hear about them because those whistleblowers either directly or indirectly took their story to, to the media. Um, Hmm. and so there are some examples of whistleblowers that are probably, uh, recognizable to a lot of people because we've, we heard, we've heard a lot about them on the news. Um, maybe the most prominent one in the last decade is Edward Snowden. So he was the, uh, National Security Agency (NSA) uh, employee who is currently in exile outside of the country um, because he, he leaked classified information uh, from the NSA without authorization, and some consider him the most wanted man in the world. And he's you know pretty much a household name at this point. So he's kind of a classic example of a whistleblower. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you go back a few more decades, there was uh, the man or the person known as Deep Throat, who uh, actually was anonymous for. For several decades and and later revealed, I think in 2005, to be someone named Mark Felt, who was an FBI agent who um, gave information in 1972 to Woodward and Bernstein, these two writers at the Washington Post, about um, what President Nixon's administration was doing and what would become the Watergate scandal. So, um, Mm -hmm. you you know, kind of classic examples of of whistleblowers um, that we hear that we've heard about and become famous through through the media
1: kind of a a little bit of a tangent but why is it that that snowden uh was recognized so quickly did he was he not anonymous
0: yeah that's a great question too and that gets gets at the definition of or the semantics of whistleblowing or a whistleblower and that's one of the um one of the characteristics if you will of a of a whistleblower is that they are um that they're not anonymous uh or that they take on they, um, they're willing to use their, reveal their identity and take on the risk of, of being known for what they're doing. Um, so you could in some ways consider okay. a deep throat to not be a true quote unquote true whistleblower because, uh, this person's identity was, was kept hidden for, for so long, which was arguably, you know, shielded him from maybe some of the repercussions of blowing the whistle. And we'll talk again, we'll talk more about what those, right. what those, what those can be. Um, a little bit. So,
1: so, a whistleblower isn't just an informant. They're someone who actually takes on the the
0: weight of, of informing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, is, that is a key aspect of being a whistleblower is that you, uh, you're not hiding. You're, you're willing to take on the risk of, of, of people seeing what you're doing. And, um, you know, pe- the people who I mean, I'd be happy with what you're doing, know who you are, and, and potentially know where to find you. Um, so, yeah, there is a, uh, almost a martyrdom, a kind of, you know, a deep risk that comes with whistleblowing because you're, you're not hiding.
1: So, full disclosure, the Snowden documentary has been on my hit list for a long time, and I just, for some reason, haven't gotten to see it. Oh, yeah. So, I don't mean to harp on him too much, but why, it why is it that Edward Snowden wasn't anonymous? I mean, why, why would he do this to himself, essentially?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think I would first say that, uh, I think a lot of whistleblowers, I've never been in a position where I felt like I needed or could have blown the whistle on, on something. So it's hard for me to kind of put myself in, in a potential whistleblower's shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there is, there is a deep sense of, of moral rightness that guides, um, the actions of many whistleblowers who, Mm -hmm. Uh, who basically say like, this is just not right. I, you know, I, I have to make this right. I have to address this wrong in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could just be because they are, um, they're personally experiencing this injustice and they need to find a way out of that, that personal um, suffering. Um, In Snowden's case, he saw something that he felt was so deeply wrong that he was willing to take on, um, you know, that risk and the potential cost. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on his on his story, and I'm sure you'll learn a lot more about it when when you see that documentary. But you know, some people have said like, "Well, Snowden's done okay for himself. You know, he's not like uh, he seems to be surviving okay, even though he's you know he can't come back to the US." And, Never, um, much, right? it, yeah, his life hasn't doesn't seem like it's been destroyed. And, and for a lot of whistleblowers, their lives are destroyed. Um, right. So some people say that oh, he's gotten he's gotten off kind of lightly, um, but he's obviously incurred great personal cost. I mean, he's he's wanted by the U.S. government, and right so. Yeah, but there is there is a you know a deep moral kind of um motivation I think for for many whistleblowers that that's that overrides some of the fear or the or, or the of the risk that they're taking.
1: Okay. So in Snowden ca- in Snowden's case he's exiled. Um he seems to be seen by many as as somewhat of a hero even though he's you know he it doesn't look like he'll be pardoned by the US or anything anytime soon. But what you know? What typically happens when a whistleblower does come forward? Are you know? Are they lo- lauded as a, a social hero? Are they um,
0: honored, or, or or what happens? That, that's a great question, and this was this was something that that was really really interesting to me in the research I did and, and the experts that I talked to, um, people who studied whistleblowing and 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 worked with whistleblowers um, for a long time, uh, is that. By and large, whistleblowing is a very um, is not a a heroes. You, you don't get the heroes welcome. Um, the the people who are lauded as as heroes are are the exceptions. Um, th- I mean, this is in mm-hmm. and, and if you know, I think we look at we look at the newspapers. We see you know we see someone like Snowden, and obviously, some people have different or have conflicted attitudes toward him. Some people think he's a hero. Some people don't, but a lot of people do. Um, but we really only see the, the, the whistleblowers that we see that we know about. Um, they're the ones that, that made it. They're the chosen few that whose stories got picked up, um, and got splashed across the front pages, but we don't see the vast majority of, of other people of other whistleblowers who never get that recognition. Um, and at the same time, whose lives very much get turned upside down by what they've done by, by, by choosing to blow the whistle. And we can, we'll talk more about what that involves, but it's, it's whistleblowers, generally speaking, do not come out on the other side of, of it in, in, in great shape. Unfortunately, it's really, uh, it rocks, it rocks people's worlds and, and uh, the consequences of, 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 whistleblowing can be devastating. Um, I mean, I could talk a, l- a little bit about what, what those are, um, here, you know, they're often ostracized by their peers, by people within the organization, uh, that they're, you know, blowing the whistle against, um, they often will lose social support, even in their family or their church or other sources of of um, you know social support. Um, as people are get wary about associating with them, um, you know, if they are blowing the whistle at their job, they can mm-hmm. often end up um, being demoted, um, eventually terminated, um, sometimes even being blacklisted, unable to work at different companies in their same industry. Um, and so their work life, their social life becomes impacted. Their ability to provide for themselves and their families, uh, their whole social safety net starts to crumble. And and that you know you can see how that domino can can create additional hardship. So it becomes this slippery slope that can come into play for the whistleblower very quickly. Um, it's it's da- it's a dangerous decision. It really is.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I used the word tattler sort of flippantly earlier, and but that that seems to be kind of the reaction because I mean tattling is is in service of 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 good quote unquote but you know nobody likes a tattler (laughs) that seems to be kind of the reaction here
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: so what kind of what's at the base of this this conflict towards whistleblowing i mean they're they're the good guys in these situations so you know why is it that we or, or that these organizations or the people within the groups that they're blowing the whistle against you know react so strongly instead of um kind of almost thanking them for for pointing out something that
0: that needs to be addressed right right that's that's a great question um so you know in one sense these people very much are the good guys they're they're the heroes they're the ones that are attempting to address injustice that other people are just happy to sweep under the rug um mm-hmm. but on the other side and this is where this is what makes the whistleblowers Position so, so troubling uh, or so, so so problematic is that by through their actions, they're threatening they're threatening the cohesion of the organization of which they're a part. They're threatening the uh the power dynamic of that organization. Um and uh especially when the wrongdoing that a whistleblower is trying to uncover is uh something that's being done by a person in power in the organization who has power over. The whistleblower and also over many other people in the organization, uh, and so when there's a challenge to that power, you know, power power fights back, and that has implications for the whole network of that organization, for the whole fabric of that organization. And so the whistleblower is really not just threatening, say, one person maybe who's doing something wrong, but because of the power dynamic at play within the organization, it creates this this very un, you know unstable kind of dynamic where other people are potentially um, uh, compromising themselves by being associated with or assisting this whistleblower because the power that um, that one person may wield over a whistleblower, that person wields over other people in the organization too. And so the whistleblower mm. is really almost throwing this poison dart into the the cohesion of the organization, the, the social cohesion of that organization. And, and again, there's, there's a, there's a, important. There's a powerful, there's a, there's a power dynamic, um, in, in any organization. Um, and when that's threatened that, that it can be a dangerous situation.
1: So they don't see it as a, as an uncovering of of a problem so much as just a threat to the authority of the organization.
0: I think, I think most people, you know, have the ability to see it as both, um, to be able to say, okay, this person is, um, trying to address an injustice, Um, but, but I think people also, those people are also able to see, but if they go through with it and if I support them, then there could be consequences, negative consequences, not just for that person, but for me, if I'm in any way associated with them too, within the organization or within our, you know, if I want to try and find a job, Mm. what if I get blacklisted, you know, people, people can read between the lines and, and sort of think a few steps ahead. Mm
1: -hmm. So you know, to to kind of dive back into this 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 dynamic, the, the kind of the the powers that be, and you know their reaction to the whistleblower and why that kind of threatens the group cohesion. Um, you know, you you talked a little bit in your article about a 2012 sociological study um, about how groups react to rats or snitches or tattlers. As I said, uh, can you talk a little bit about that study? You know, how this applies back to this entire um, topic, and and you know, kind of what the findings of that study were.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this, this was a fascinating study. And so I think it's worth diving into the details a little bit, um, because it gets at this, this question that we're talking about, um, about why people, yeah, don't, don't like this, you know, people don't like a a snitch. Um, this, this study, it was a 2012 study, um, came to a, a pretty simple conclusion, which was that nobody likes a rat, which is kind of a common phrase, but this was also their sociological finding. Um, so what this study looked at was what they what they referred to as the intrinsic motivation of of people of individuals um, to report uh, other members of a group that they were a part of um, to report these people who chose to lie to tell lies for personal per, for personal gain mm-hmm. and so that that was kind of the first part. so looking at are people telling on others. In their group, when those other people lie to for for their own gain, um, but it also looked at a it it looked at the factor of um, how does people's uh, propensity to report other people's lying change when you give people a say a voice in who who is allowed to be part of their group. Um, hmm. So if it's a group that just forms without any say among the members of who can actually be part of it. If it just swarms in sort of an organic ad hoc way um, where people don't have agency or control over you, you know, okay, you can be in this group or no, you can't. Um, So they looked at groups that had that characteristic versus groups that were able to decide, okay, the members could say, yes, we know I choose you for my group. They had a say in who was part of the group. And basically what they found was, um, that more people were willing to report the lies of other people when they were members of uh, what the the researchers called a fixed group, so when nobody had a say in who was able to join uh, hmm. so when they didn't have that agency that power that control over selecting members the membership of the group, people were more likely to um, to report other people for lying to you know kind of play that whistleblower role but hmm. when what they determined was when groups were in groups that, that were able to select their members, um, so to say, okay, you're in or you're out, to have that agency, that power, the control, people who reported liars were generally shunned. So this dynamic really shifted where mm-hmm. when certain members of the group were able to decide who was in and who was out, then um, there's there more of a hierarchy, and people who tried to call out people who maybe had more power in the group who were telling lies, they were, you know, there was, there was backlash against that. Hmm. So in other words, when, when a group, um, kind of forms on its own terms, when, when it's able to choose its own members and forge kind of a more intentional identity, um, and, and have that more kind of hierarchical pyrodynamic where certain people have decided who's a member and who's not rather than sort of a flat organization where nobody's really in charge of who's, who's, who's a member or not. Um, so when you have these more, uh, intentional, more hierarchical groups, um, lying becomes more acceptable in the name of group cohesion. Um, and so people and people who are part of the group mm-hmm. who report that lying are at greater risk of being given the cold shoulder or, you know, even worse. Huh. So it's, it's I mean, it's an interesting piece of of sociological evidence. And I think it gets a little bit at uh, why we struggle with whistleblowers because the I talk about the organization um, as being this entity that is, Characterized by social cohesion and hierarchy, and when that cohesion, when that hierarchy is threatened, as it does, as it is when somebody blows the whistle on someone or or a group of people within the organization, the organization fights back. Um, so, yeah, this is this is one way or one piece of evidence for why uh, we don't like snitches um, because they threaten the social order of the organization. They threaten the status quo, which is a source of stability for, for the people inside the organization. They don't want their boat to be rocked. Um, they don't want to be retaliated against themselves because they've sided with a, with a whistleblower. Um, Mm. and, and just one final point here is, you know, this, this is maybe more of an obvious thing when you think of something like, uh, maybe, you know, and not to cast aspersions on any, any particular group or religion or anything, but for instance, in a church or, you know, something where there's a, a, you know, alignment, a very deep sort of spiritual alignment to this, to a story, um, where people are really, you know, have this soul connection to a deep, powerful story that they, you know, they give their lives for. Um, and there's a deep social cohesion that goes along with that. Um, it may seem a little more obvious that somebody who blows the whistle in that context would be, um, you know, would be shunned because the story of that organization, the, the, the binding story is so powerful. But what we see is that even in other organizations, whether it's just, you know, a company or a startup where there's not arguably not that same level of, you know, deep spiritual connection between the people that, that the organization and people in the organization turn against the whistleblower. Kind of
1: a a, a tangential question, but I mean, does whistleblowing actually threaten that organization? You know, like it, like if you're a church, let's say, and you have uh, something go wrong with within the structure, you know, one one element of that of that uh, religious structure, the one of the, the higher ups, you know, commits some some foul act, and uh, you report them, you know, does that actually undermine the entire organization? Because I mean, I, you know, I mean, we might as well go there, because I you know, I don't think I think don't think it's off off the the radar to do so you know if you look at the catholic church and um you know all the uh, sex abuse scandal that has has finally come to light i mean the church is still there it's still going strong so you know is it is it more the the worry of of the threat that whistleblowing kind of provides or i mean is it does it actually you know pull the organization
0: down at all yeah that's a great question and i think um I think it, it certainly varies from organization mm-hmm. to organization. Um, but it's, we, we, I think we see sort of a similar, we, we see the same or a similar dynamic play out, but in different ways to different degrees, depending on the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it depends, I think in part on who is, who is being, uh, who the whistleblower is calling out. Um, you know what is the that person's status? How much power do they do they wield inside the organization? How much can they um, leverage their their power and their status within the organization and their power over others in the organization uh, in response to this this claim or this this threat of that the whistleblower is 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 bringing? Um, so I think that that's part of it too. Is not just um, looking at it as the organization as a whole, but you know who is actually who's being having the whistle blown against them
1: i mean is there an example of an organization that that had a, a whistle blown against them and that organization sort of crumpled as a result i'm just thinking like in the example of snowden i mean the nsa is still there you know in the example of the catholic church right still there um uh you know the military is still there so it just seems it seems like uh i just wonder at how much of a re, of an actual threat you know from from a uh evaluative standpoint, um, whistleblowing actually, you know, provides, or, or if it's more of just a sociological kind of backlash against the, the notion.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I I think it has to do with partly how we, like how we define the organization, how, how powerful the organization is to begin with, um, how maybe anti-fragile it is to borrow an idea from, from Nicholas Taleb, um, you know, how how able is the organization to adapt to, to change, to, um, to, you know, assault uh, of some kind, Mm -hmm. um, to a threat, uh, you know, to its identity. Um, Right.
1: So the whistleblowing might uncover something that actually needs to be changed, but in order to change, the organization would have to reshape itself and that's something they're not willing to do.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think even if, even if it's just one person even who in the in the organization who's implicated um, even if that person doesn't have a lot of power an accusation against that person could reflect poorly on the entire the entire story the entire identity of the organization um, can can cause uh, questions to be asked about about the organization as a whole and how you know what they're doing and how they're doing it um, mm. and are they going about things in the right way even if ostensibly it's just being the whistleblowing is just focused on one person's actions. Um, it could have a ripple effect that makes others feel unstable or uneasy about their place in an organization that would allow this to happen. Um, or wonder, you know, if it's happening in other, in other ways or in other places in the organization. So it creates, it creates instability. Right. Um, And, uh, I think that's fundamentally something that humans, uh, have trouble with. We, we don't like change. Um, and, even if we're not the ones being implicated, um, if we are part of the order or the organization uh, of the of the person or, or, the, or the powers that are that are implicated, um, then then we kind of we retreat and we we, we become defensive and, and protective of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: If we're talking about like the average person who's a member of an organization that has the whistle blown against them why why does kind of the group as a whole react the way it does against whistleblowing? I'm just thinking if if let's say someone blew blew the whistle against winning edits and you know called out known on on you know never wearing pants and you know it kind of threatened our identity as a as a group. because um, known wears shorts, not that he doesn't not wear pants. I don't know if we're gonna have to edit this question. He does. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if someone blew <laughs> you the whistle within again? winning edits, you know, I feel like I feel like I would. I would say, yeah. Oh, wow. That. Thank you for pointing that out. We need to fix that. But it seems like in practice, that's not often the case. So, so you know, why is it exactly that we kind of tribally turn against the whistleblower?
0: Well, I think part of it uh, just comes back to uh, our deep need for uh, for for that tribal connection, tribal identity. Um, it is, you know it's something that, that gets to the core of who we are as humans. Um, you know, we evolved over millions of years, uh, as, um, you know, the prey of, of, of the great predators of, of snakes and, and big cats on the grasslands. And so we had to, we had to team up, we had to tribe up just to survive. Um, and so humans, part of the reason that we've made it so far, uh, in our evolution is that we, you know, develop the, the, the capacity for complex language and storytelling. So we were able to, um, to unite each other, to unite ourselves around, around stories. You know, you go back to the stories that were told around the campfire hundreds of thousands of years ago that, that created, you know, unifying myths for, for human tribes and, and gave us a reason and, uh, to stay together and, and, and to keep going and, um, and also allowed us to cooperate. So we, uh, we have, humans have the, um, we have the ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers, which is something that really no other species can do. Uh, some species have the ability to cooperate flexibly. Uh, for instance, chimpanzees. Um, they're able to cooperate flexibly, uh, but only in small groups. So they can do some, some really dynamic things together. But they can't do that at a large scale the way humans can
1: can can you explain what flexible cooperation means? I'm just yeah, so they're
0: that. able to they're able to work together um in in complex ways. so uh, rather than just follow a simple script like, okay, now we go in that straight line across the the bush to to find our food and we return, they're more flexible they They can change the way that they uh, they adapt or co or cooperate um as they're making that journey if they need to make a stop for water. They can, they can as a group communicate and decide, okay, we need to do this now. Um, and so it, it just gives the species more options to be able to survive and respond to threats and, 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 and stimuli. Got um, it. Got it. whereas if you look at a, uh, a species like, uh, the ant, they're able to, unlike the chimp, they're able to cooperate in large numbers. So that's why you see like hundreds and thousands of ants that are all you know, around the the anthills or whatever and, and doing their their jobs um and cooperating, coordinating with each other, but um they're they're all very you know very task minded. They're not they're not gonna adjust the way that they're the the way that they're working together. Mm-hmm. Um so they're not able to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Got it. Uh but humans humans have put this together. So um we we've used this power of story and storytelling uh through things like religion and government And, uh, the idea of the nation state and things like money, these are all unifying stories, uh, that allow us to communicate, to cooperate in a flexible way across, you know, billions of people across the entire world. So we're really the only species that's able to do this. And so just to, that's just to give a little background on why we are such social creatures. Um, because we, we evolved these very, um, powerful means of communicating connecting cooperating and so our social uh our social orders our, our social organizations are very important to us and so we create very deep bonds um with each other and and within these these groups these tribes you know we really are um we haven't become non-tribal a non-tribal species we've just evolved the form of our tribes and those tribes are still very uh very very cohesive in a lot of ways. And so when anything threatens that cohesion, then then our our uh, we feel that our identity is threatened and we respond we respond to that.
1: huh. That's interesting. i, I would I would think that I mean, it just it seems more logical that we'd we'd find a way as a group to adapt to um, threat from within an organization, but it almost seems like like the story is more powerful than the the cohesion of the group to some extent
0: that's what makes it really tricky is that the story, you know, the identity of, of a group is what lends it its cohesion. Mm Um, so it's, it's, how do we, how do we maintain that cohesion when the story is threatened? Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think as a species we've quite figured that out yet. It's always, it's a rough process. And the organ, you know, if the organization survives uh, a threat to that, that's that central story um it often comes out on the other end in a different form and that story has changed Mm. so
1: one of the things that seems relevant here and, and you talk about this a little bit in the article is how whistleblowing factors into our national identity in the west you know how there's almost a kind of identity conflict in which we're simultaneously celebrating the idea of the whistleblower but you know we're not really following through in reality so can you talk about that a little bit
0: yeah, absolutely. Um in the west in the US, uh I think it's fair I think it's fair to single out the US in this case. Uh mm-hmm. we have a very conflicted attitude toward whistleblowers, toward people who take a stance and go against the grain of the organization, against the social grain, which is what whistleblowers do. Um so on the one hand, you know, our our American identity is is very deeply informed by you know the the pioneer model, the individualist, the rugged individualist, the you know, the exceptionalism of the individual who's like going it alone. Um, mm-hmm. and you don't have to look far to see, see how this idea or some version of it is threaded into our popular culture. Um, mm-hmm. and it's often sort of this rugged stoic male loner archetype. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the lone ranger, the Marlborough man, the guy's still uh, around? <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, it's a good question. We should, we should look him up. <laughs> um, I haven't seen him in the newspapers for a little while, so he, uh, he may have, um, may have smoked his last puff but (laughs) you never know that might bring him back um but yeah like figures like that you know john wayne and his trusty colt 45 or whatever it is superman Mm -hmm. you know alone in his ice cave and batman alone in his mansion you know these are these are our touchstones or you know they're among our touchstones Mm -hmm. um and so yeah this is kind of part of I, I want to say, you know, white colonial, white colonial America's pioneer identity. And we've, mm-hmm. we've sort of revere this, this figure of the, the, you know, it's usually a, a guy and uh, he's usually white, but he, right. you know, he's, he has the privilege and the ability or the desire or whatever it is to go it along. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, that's one piece. But at the same time, I mean, come on, we're really no different from the rest of humanity. We're all like, as we've been talking about, we're intensely social creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, we, just like every human around the world, we require, we crave social connection, social identity, mm-hmm. social organization. Um, You know, we need our tribes. And these two elements of this sort of lone individualist and, you know, our, our nature as social creatures are kind of at odds, I think, culturally for us in the US. Mm-hmm. And this conflict, and it comes right to the fore with something like whistleblowing, because we, we do, we celebrate the idea of the whistleblower. And again, you can look at, you can look at our popular culture here. Um, you know, we look at the underdog and maybe it's not a whistleblower per se, although there are plenty of movies about whistleblowers that, you know, that sort of hold these people up as heroes, but even just look at the idea of the underdog is going up against, you know, Goliath or the system or, or the, the winning team, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Rudy or the karate kid or the list, you know, goes, is endless. Um, So we, we, we put, we put the whistleblower, we put the underdog on a pedestal. Um, but I think in reality, we're very few of us really understand what it, you know, what it means to be, uh, you know, a a true loner who's not just a loner in, in sort of the John Wayne mold, but someone who's truly, you know, isolated, ostracized by, by the group, um, uh, because they went against, they went against the grain of, of what that group was about.
1: Right nor do most of us want to be that i think
0: no i think i think we put that we put that out of sight out of mind and you know mm-hmm. i think we have people have ways of coping with loneliness but yeah i mean i don't think anybody really truly considers what it would be like to to have to deal with like that sort of true active shunning by their mm-hmm. by their group i mean it mm-hmm. is it's a kind of death in a way and again going back to evolution and and how we, you know we we came up in tribes and if you were, if you were, you know, expelled by your tribe out in the Savannah, like that was pretty much a death sentence, literally. And mm. today it still is a death sentence. It may be a slower death and a different kind of death. It's a social death, but it's still just as, as awful, you know? Right.
1: yet yeah, We're
0: watching it happen to these
1: people and kind of, kind of allowing it to happen because we, well, you know, I guess this leads to my next question. Do we, do we have policies that, you know, would protect a whistleblower? Because I... I think I think most people would agree that whistleblowing is often necessary. I mean, it often exposes some some injustice, often that's been happening for a long time that you know hasn't been addressed, and you know it. it maybe that person gets ostracized, but I think there's a there's usually a pretty good reason that they're willing to you know have that unhappy a- ending and, and for the you know for the betterment of of the world, so to speak. So from right. a policy perspective, to Come back to my original question. You know, what policies or laws do we have in place to protect
0: these whistleblowers?
1: You know, and, and are they effective?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and it's an important thing for any anyone, especially anyone who's thinking of blowing the whistle, to be aware of what the law um provides for them if they decide to go through with it. Um, and so I'll answer that question, but I, I first want to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about some of the threats that uh, that whistleblowers face and. Uh, and why and or in the consequences that whistleblowers face and and one of the big issues here is especially um if someone wants to blow the whistle within say their company um what a lot of whistleblowers don't do is they don't they don't go out and and learn about okay what what do i need to do what do i need to know before i blow the whistle and um a lot of times they will go through what you might think of as the official channels um so a lot of organizations, a lot of companies, will often will say that they welcome, they encourage whistleblowing, and they'll even set up frameworks like offices or what have you within the organization, where people can report wrongdoing. And so a mm-hmm. lot of would-be whistleblowers look at this: okay, this is this is where I'll go with my complaint. Um, but the problem is that you know these official channels, even though they're uh, on paper, they're they're there to support you know, the fourth, you know, people coming forward with information, they're not really there to support the whistleblower. You know, if you go to HR to, to human resources in your company, like here's an open secret. HR is not an organization that exists to serve the employee. It's there for the company, for the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why it's called human resources because you're, you're a human resource Um, in the company's (laughs) mind. Your role is is to serve the company, the organization, but -hmm. people see, you know, they, they, they put their trust in that part of the organization. And, and, and I think people, a lot of whistleblowers kind of go into it with a bit of sort of a rosy colored colored glasses approach. Um, Mm -hmm. and think that, okay, if I, if I go through the official channels, then, um, you know, I'm going to be okay. Nobody's going to retaliate against me, but so this is so. getting back to your question about whistleblower protection laws. Um, so there are, thankfully, uh, in the U.S., there are uh, several laws that are meant to look out for whistleblowers. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'll talk a little bit about them. The main one is uh, called the False Claims Act. So what this is, um, it does a couple things. The main thing it does is uh, it provides incentives to whistleblowers uh, if they blow the whistle on some... It's usually, if it's a type of fraud, uh, that results in the government, um, following up in, in court against that organization, uh, if the government ends up recovering money from that claim, then a, a percentage mm-hmm. of that money will go right to the whistleblower. And this can often, this has, the whistleblowers have ended up with huge sums of money, um, depending mm-hmm. on the scale of the fraud. So it's got kind of a carrot, um, attached to it so encouraging people to blow the whistle
1: right um but by definition if you're blowing the whistle then you're you know they know who you are exactly
0: <laughs> right so it's got the carrot but as we as we've kind of been talking about the real threat for whistleblowers is not oh i'm am i gonna make five million dollars if i blow the whistle oh i'm not oh darn it's not it's not the mm. lack of a positive it's the great um uh, chance for a ton of negative negative. and so right. um the law does also uh provide some some help there um uh the false Mm -hmm. claims act uh has some job protection provisions that basically say if someone blows the whistle you know that their their job should not be should not be at stake um there are some Mm -hmm. other laws that have uh similar provisions uh such as the dodd frank act which was um the wall street reform act that uh passed under the obama administration in 2010 um so that created Mm -hmm. uh its own whistleblower programs at the Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as the Commodity mm-hmm. Futures Trading Commission. So, you know, often the financial sector. Um, so they have their own whistleblower protection programs that have whistleblower job protection provisions. Um, right. And some states also have their own version of the False Claims Act that have, um, that, you know, that have their own job protection clauses. So the law in a lot of places, both federally and at the state level, says, you know, if somebody blows the whistle, then their job should not be at risk. Um, mm-hmm. So this is this is still in the U.S. I mean, a lot of other countries have their own whistleblower protection laws. We won't go into, into those. Um, right, right. But the bottom line here is that, you know, okay, we've got some job protection provisions that are baked into the law via the False Claims Act and, and some other pieces of law. Um, and we have the uh, incentives that the False Claims Act has. Mm-hmm. But it's unfortunately this you know this is simply it's not enough um the the truth is that um that there are there are ways for the organization to retaliate that don't involve um immediate termination of employment which is generally what these job protection provisions uh are set up to prevent um so there are but there are there are many ways for an organization for a company to to kind of get their get their back um, or to, to retaliate mm. against a whistleblower. Um, one of the uh, one of the the whistleblower experts that I spoke with was a, a professor emeritus at the University of Maryland College Park named uh, Charles Fred Alford, and he's someone who's studied whistleblowing extensively. and uh, He told me that he 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 believes that it's simply too easy to, as he said, to get rid of whistleblowers in ways that are consonant with the law. So you can stay within the bounds of the law, but still make life miserable for a whistleblower. Um, and so what right. usually happens is most whistleblowers they're not fired right away because that would be too obvious. Um, the laws you know specifically proscribe that. They say you can't do that. So what the organizations do is they'll sort of met out this its punishment over a long stretch of time in different ways that are still legal, but very much make the whistleblower's life a living hell. Um, so you know, it can start small, like they're passed over for promotions or they're just given increasing levels of work and that they can't, can't keep up with. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've heard stories of whistleblowers who are like literally given broom closets for offices, Um, you know, and and that's, it's legal, I guess, maybe at least in some places. Um, And so Mm -hmm. organizations, companies will do this and just sort of do this for years until the whistleblower inevitably is not going to be able to perform their job adequately. Um, And so then the organization Mm -hmm. can say, well, you're not doing your job, so you're not performing. We're going to have to let you go for that reason. Um, and so, Mm -hmm. and so what, what professor Alford found, he did research with, uh, you know, cases like this. And he found that the average time between someone blowing the whistle and actually getting fired was about two years. And, and what he said was that this effectively disconnected that act of retaliation of termination, um, from the act of whistleblowing itself. And so this is, you know, the law. So basically the TLDR is the law has some, Provisions in place, but it's it really can't protect against uh, something like this,
1: right? So let's pivot a little bit and and talk about some recent events, um, which. I actually don't know if they're technically whistleblowing, but, you know, it's 2018, late last year and well into this year, we have this sudden outbreak of sexual assault accusations. I shouldn't shouldn't say a sudden outbreak, but a a lot of them all of a sudden at once, uh, as opposed to sort of dripping out. And particularly in Hollywood, you know, Harvey Weinstein being sort of the first big domino to fall. And then we have some really well-known names uh, in that industry Coming up next, like Kevin Spacey, George Takei, uh, Louis C.K., Garrison Keillor, Matt Lauer, uh, Justin Hoffman, George H.W. Bush, Oliver Stone, Ben Affleck, and our president, Donald Trump. Uh, the New York Times actually detailed 51 men who'd been accused in a November article, and it's uh, grown since then. So this this has been dubbed, uh, at least on social media, as the hashtag MeToo uh, reckoning. So you know are these events technically speaking
0: uh, whistleblowing great question um i think i think before diving into that um, it's probably important to acknowledge a few really crucial points to kind of set the table uh, as it were um you know mm-hmm. as you as you pointed out this is something that the me too movement that that started um that, you know bubbling up last last year and is is very much ongoing um this is it continues in, and its evolving. Um, you know, we're talking now here, it's like the last week of January. Um, people will be hearing this episode, I don't know, maybe a month from now. So a lot will probably have changed between, between now and then. Um, so that's kind of the first point. Um, the second is that, um, you know, I've, I've read up and kind of followed the movement. I don't consider myself an expert, at, um, especially because this is, it's, it is, it's happening so fast. And, and, you know, we're kind of starting mm-hmm. to see a bit of a backlash, I think there's also, you know, there's also just the simple aspect that we're two guys here talking about this. So, you know, just acknowledging uh, the problematicness or the layers of, you know, the layers of privilege that are inherent in just the fact right, that we're, right. you know, the perspective that we don't get by, by, ha- you know, by not having a woman involved in the conversation specifically. So, So anyway, um, that's my long wind speaking purely academically. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, caveating everything. So yeah, but but just to say, you know, I want to tread lightly a little bit, um, again, especially Mm -hmm. as this me too movement is still very much unfolding. So to get back to your question about whistleblowing, um, I think if you look at, if you think about like a Venn diagram of what's happening with the me too movement and then on the other side, you've got the phenomenon of whistleblowing and you think about that intersection, there's definitely a lot of overlap. Um, and I think I do think Me Too is also about more than just whistleblowing, um, but I, I think whistleblowing is absolutely a, a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so on that point, I think the Me Too movement, I mean, is is absolutely is definitely characterized by whistleblowing. I think this is a, this is definitely a um, a key example of the whistleblower phenomenon, uh, and it's a little mm-hmm. bit more than that. But um, but yeah, it is fundamentally about you know brave individuals, brave women stepping forward, being willing to step forward and, and to, you know, to take on personal risk, to disrupt the power dynamic, um, the status quo, you know, business as usual, um, and put themselves at risk so that they can highlight an injustice and, um, you know, change, change a culture really. Um, but, Mm -hmm. and I think that, I think that idea that, that, that changing the culture aspect is what makes me too maybe different, um, or a little bit unique compared to, you know, kind of isolated whistleblower cases um, because it's tapped into it's, I think it's tapped into a very deep part of the zeitgeist where, you know, the kind of injustice that is being brought to light is something that's so sadly common. um, And so many others have dealt with it across, you know, there really are no boundaries. It seems um, uh, in terms of where and how women have, have dealt with, um, you know, abuse at at the hands of, of powerful men. And so there, we're seeing this wave now of not just individual cases of assault and abuse, but there's also a wave of this conversation of how do we change the culture? How do we, how do we hit it home that this is no longer acceptable behavior? This is no longer an acceptable sort of cultural baseline for us. And how do we get to the root of what's behind it? And so I think that's Mm -hmm. the, that's what I see as the key factor or differentiator here. Um, when you compare what's happening with this Me Too movement to, other examples of, of whistleblowing. Um, it's having this massive cultural impact, not, not, you know, not within a single organization, not at all. I mean, it's cutting well across organizational lines, national lines. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, this has become an international or at least an internationally recognized movement. Um, I don't know if you've heard all this stuff about what the French are, what the French think about it. Um, you know, they've Uh got some things to say. Mm -hmm. So, so Mm -hmm. my final point there is that, um, you know, it's, it's not to say that every, that other whistleblower cases have not, have not led to a similar kind of soul searching at, at a large societal level. Um, I do think uh, the leaks of, you know, Edward Snowden, for instance, who we talked about, Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, um, uh, I think their leaks, their whistleblowing also led to uh, a, a kind of soul searching at, at a, you know, at a national societal level. About around issues of you know, privacy and government surveillance and government overreach and war crimes, um, but I do think that Me Too has tapped into a a singularly potent vein across our whole society and and other societies too.
1: So is is that kind of nebulous nature of Me? Too? I mean, because Me Too isn't just about the film industry. Obviously, it's about it's about a huge cultural issue where we have you know these these men. In power, who who are you know empowered well beyond you know what what any respectable person should should be allowed to to do basically um and to the point where they're actually you know harming other other people specifically women uh, but is it is it because the the me too movement is so nebulous and not specified to one organization that the reaction towards these women seems to be I mean, positive for the most part. I mean, if you look at other whistleblowers like Snowden um, or, you know, the, the you know countless unnamed whistleblowers who lose their jobs and so forth because of whistleblowing, uh, you know, the, the backlash is, is mixed at best, you know, and usually negative. So, so why is it, I guess, that um, this is an easier movement to stand behind and, and these are whistleblowers who are not sort of – Suffering the deleterious you know consequences of whistleblowing as opposed to whistleblowing that is inside an organization that has all those negative horrible consequences and kind of life ruining aspects for the whistleblower
0: yeah I, I think I think the main um, the main thing here is that you know as, as we talked about the, the the specific the type of abuse harassment the the injustice that's being brought to light that's surfacing as a result of me too is um, you know is a phenomenon that is sadly relevant across a really, really huge context. Um, you know, so many women mm-hmm. in so many industries and countries and, and context have, are, you know, have experienced the same kind of thing. And, and this is, you know, they're finally able to, or feel that they're, you know, feel safe in, in, uh, in talking about it and, and not hiding mm-hmm. behind it or, or, you know, feeling the shame about it or, or, you know, there's, there's kind of a uniting around this sort of shared experience. Um, I don't know if that's exactly the right term for it, but, you know, or or similarity of shared experience. Um, You know, this is something that many women unfortunately can relate to even if they haven't, you know, or have experienced directly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is that Mm -hmm. alone is a huge reason for the wide support. Um, The issue is simply it's big enough, it's relevant enough to to so many people and in so many contexts. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that relate? I mean, in the Snowden case,
1: I mean, I think I think that's kind of why he's sort of seen as a hero too, isn't it? Because what he pointed out was something that, that did apply to everybody, you know, phone tapping and, and that, you know, we were basically being spied on by the government in, in legal and um, privacy infringing ways.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Snowden is probably the most, you know, if you, th- if you had to think of, you know, he was the first example of a whistleblower I brought up in, in the modern era and, um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, he, what he, what he unveiled, uh, is something that with great relevance for all of us. Absolutely. And I think, again, it also, it tapped into that zeitgeist. It tapped into something that cuts across so many lines and so many layers of society that, um, you know, we all probably have the, the, the need to be worried about what he, what he, he wanted us to see. Um, hmm.
1: Yeah, this is this is fascinating because I'm just thinking, you know, I mean, this goes back to the study that you mentioned earlier, t- too, doesn't it? I mean, the the idea that if you have a if you have a social group that don't have any say in who their membership is, and the whistle is blown, then there isn't that negative reaction. But if it's a it's a, if it's a membership group like an organization where they do get to decide who's part of it, and someone blows the whistle, they feel threatened by it. So it is it is I guess it kind of is the nebulous nature of of Me Too that's. Uh, I guess making it successful might be the wrong word, but you know, at least at least uh, powerful and um, and memorable.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think we're I think we're in tricky waters here, but I yeah I, th- I think you are onto something there. I think that you know I think yeah this movement has a lot of visibility outside of the organizations in which the abuse or the injustice has taken place. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in a way, it's you know I don't want to say it's easier for people to get behind it. Um, because, you know, and I use this word very carefully, but there is, there's more safety in aligning yourself with, with a cause than if you were inside the organization. Um, I think that is part of what's going on, but at the same time, I do think that there is perhaps a cultural shift going on, or at least a, a strong desire or, or motivation to, to change the culture where, where there isn't this danger, uh, this fear of retaliation, um, for women who, who come forward and report their, male superiors for, for sexual abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, every organization is different and it's hard to, you know, it's really hard to say like how will the Me Too movement affect the culture of so many different organizations or the ability of women at large to safely come forward Mm -hmm. and blow the whistle against their, you know, their, their wrongdoers. Um, and Mm -hmm. so I think, I mean, I think we need to be careful not to draw any assumptions, especially at this early stage I assume that 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 this movement is, you know, just sort of naturally automatically going to make it easier for every woman or any woman who's, who's been assaulted by a male superior to come forward without fear of retaliation. You know, that it's a cultural shift and it's, and you know, this is not like, it's not a monoculture. Like we're, we're talking about different cultures and different organizations. You know, it's, it's always tricky when you talk about Mm -hmm. sort of the culture as this monolithic thing. Um, but we are at least seeing this conversation about changing the culture, you know, it put that in quotes um which is you know this generally defined as a male dominated patriarchal culture where where men are protected mm-hmm. um and, mm-hmm. and women you know are retaliated against when they when they come forward with this these sorts of accusations. So um yeah I don't know how I don't know how that cultural shift is gonna unfold. Uh I, I hope that it I hope it does trend toward a general attitude that is that is at least more trusting of women's accounts of sexual abuse. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the big things that, um, you know, it's a starting point is that let's, let's give women the benefit, right. benefit of the doubt. And so hopefully as a baseline, that's where we end up soon as a culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to shift gears again just briefly to, to talk about uh, actually WikiLeaks. You mm-hmm. know, when, when I think of wi- whistleblowing, I think what a lot of people think of whistleblowing, they think of about WikiLeaks, you know, it is as, as many people are aware, the international nonprofit organization that publishes secret information, news leaks, and classified media all provided by anonymous sources. So are
0: WikiLeaks, uh, whistleblowers technically? That's a great question. Um, no, they're not. Uh, why? So we can go back to some of the, the definition of, of whistleblowing we talked about earlier. Um, but first, I mean, obviously, acknowledge that WikiLeaks has certainly facilitated uh, the leaks of of whistleblowers. Um, maybe more, most famously, Bradley Manning, who's now Chelsea Manning. Um, mm-hmm. But WikiLeaks themselves are—I mean, I look at them as more of a, you know, a facilitator of information, or an, you know, a, uh, they're not—they're not whistleblowers um, because inherent in the the practice of whistleblowing is this risk, this personal cost that that martyrdom that, that the whistleblower has to, to take on and WikiLeaks in no way have, you know, they have not played that role or incurred that cost. Um, yeah, the WikiLeaks is not a martyr by any stretch. They have allowed whistleblowers to come forward and share the, the information that they're, that they're leaking more widely. Um, but they do, mm-hmm. they have not taken on the same level of risk that, uh, that the individual whistleblowers have. Got it. Got it.
1: And, you know, also related to WikiLeaks, you know, um, it, it's evident that, that whistleblowing is, is, I think, necessary um, often to eradicate, you know, corruption from within organizations, basically to, to make the world better. Uh, so what would need to change, you know, in your opinion and, and from what you've researched in writing your article on a sociological level for whistleblowing to be a safe practice, you know, or are whistleblowers sort of always going to be seen as outsiders uh, is the risk that comes along with being whistleblower, uh, sort of definitive of it?
0: Yeah. You know, and I think we've, I think we've, we've hit at this, this question, you know, I think, yes, there's always going to be whistleblowing is always going to have a, a sharp edge attached to it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's built in, I think to this phenomenon, it it comes down to, to fundamental principles of, of human cohesion of, of shared story, Uh, that we talked about that allows people to unite around an idea and, and do more collectively, Um, you know, cooperate flexibly in large numbers. And that it's a human need that we have for cohesion, for agreement. And it's, it's a powerful thing. And, um, and then when you have an organization and and that has a power structure that emerges within it um, that, you know, demands and requires that cohesion, whenever you go against that cohesion and against that power structure, that's that's almost always going to result in in some sort of some sort of backlash. So I think I think that unfortunately, you know uh, when you think when you think about whistleblowing in terms of you know people taking on this individual risk, then then no I, I I don't think much is going to change there in in the short or medium term because we're we're dealing with very basic human impulses and in sort of rules of engagement and in social and social connection. Um, but I think oh, like again, kind of going back to the legal end of things um you know like so many things and we're seeing right now with with so much worry about you know how how strong are our institutions of government in particular you know the judicial branch um and this is again a, a you know we have we have laws that that do that provide some protections for whistleblowers they're not perfect by any stretch um but you know at the very least we need to keep keep our judicial branch strong and keep those laws in place um you know so that at least there is um, the protections that do exist for whistleblowers um, you know don't don't go away
1: do you have you know like a list of tips for someone who's considering blowing the whistle, not that I am, but like you know let's say that um, i've discovered some gross transgression of of ethics within an organization that i 'm a part of what do I do, you know who do I go to, and how do I protect myself?
0: Will it help if I just admit to stealing your notebook? Will that, can we not? you know what? Are we good? Yeah, we'd probably just avoid. Okay. So, all right. So cool. (laughs) But hypothetically, you know, in summary, I think it's pretty clear based on our conversation today that the whistleblower is someone who takes on a huge, huge risk and burden. Um, It it can be immense. Like their lives, you know, lives can be ruined uh, from blowing the whistle. Um, But there is still, there's still a lot that a whistleblower can do to at least mitigate that risk. Um, but they need to know where to start. And one of the really interesting conversations I had in research for my articles with, uh, with someone named Stephen Stephen M Cohn, who is, uh, he's an attorney and a whistleblower advocate who's, who's worked, um, you know, in that capacity for a number of years. And he is the, uh, executive director of the national whistleblower center. And, uh, <laughs> and he basically said the, and we talked about this a little bit, like most whistleblowers kind of go into, whistleblowing with you know the sense of like okay i'm doing the right thing and i'm just doing my job without really understanding the huge backlash that they could be facing and so they first the first step is just to understand that if you're going to go ahead with this you're putting a lot at risk um so that's the first thing is just be realistic and uh professor alford who i spoke with as well said the same thing you need to know what you're up against you need to know that this is not just going to be like okay i'm just telling my story and that's that so the second thing that and this is the second thing that that um that Stephen Cohn told me was that potential whistleblowers have to know their rights. So again, this comes back to, uh, comes back to the law. And I'm not going to go you know down the line with all what those rights are, but there are, there are ways and places to go learn about them. And I'll talk about one in a second here. Um, but he, you know, uh, Stephen Cohn, he's, he's somebody who'd, who's been, like I said, doing whistleblower protection for for a long time, over 30 years. And he's seen plenty of tragic cases. And he said, he hears people, come into his office and they they tell him what they did and they did the right thing, you know, quote unquote. And, um, but because of the way they went about it, they have no rights. They've, they've squandered their rights under the law and they're going to lose whatever court case, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there may be as a result of what they've done. Um, you know, they're probably going to lose their job. And, but if they had changed the way they approached it up front, if they'd known what their rights were and how to go about the whistleblowing Mm -hmm. process to not uh, forfeit those rights um, then they, they might be in a better position. So again, there's a lot of kind of nitty gritty here and I won't go into it. Um, but I will, I will recommend a, uh, a resource. Uh, and this is one that, um, that Cohen himself wrote and, uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. It's called the new whistleblower's handbook. And we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, if you are thinking of blowing the whistle, this is a resource I definitely recommend. Mr. Cohen very kindly sent me a copy of it after our interview and, uh, I've held it in my hands. Yeah. And, uh, let me tell you, I, I hope that I have no reason to to read it at any point in the near future. But it's a big book. It's a heavy. Nice. It's a heavy, heavy book. It's over 500 pages long. So that that should give you just a little sense of, of what a whistleblower is up against. Just just to prepare themselves, you know, for 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 the path ahead. Um, mm-hmm. But there are resources out there. That's one of them. Um, there are a number mm-hmm. of organizations set up to protect whistleblowers, including, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, the National Whistleblower Center. So look them up. Um, do your homework. It's the most important thing.
1: Um, we've we've talked a lot about whistleblowers and you know whistleblower agency and what choices are available and the constraints the whistleblower has to operate within. But what about when it comes to the organization itself? And this is my last question. You know, is it really this monolithic, unchangeable thing that's just always going to be aligned against the whistleblower? You know, is it possible for the organization to shoulder the burden? Um, do a better job of making whistleblowers or whistleblowing less dangerous um, you know can there be an environment in which whistleblowing can occur and maybe it gets dealt with internally without any backlash to the whistleblower
0: yeah I, I'm glad you asked and, and this is something we touched on a little bit um, you, you know I think it's something that that um, that there is there is actually maybe a, a little bit of reason to be optimistic and I think there are there are things there are ways that uh, that organizations can adapt and adjust their culture um, to make whistleblowing at least less, a little bit less dangerous. Um, you know, let's let's not put all of the onus on the, whist- the whistleblower themselves if we don't have to. Like, you know, anybody who's considering blowing the whistle still needs to do their homework. But that said, um, the, I did come across some research that suggests that maybe there is reason for some optimism and, and some, um, you know, positive adaptability within organizations. So one of the studies I found was uh, was a study that was done in twenty eleven by an organization called the Ethics Resource Center, and so they looked at they looked at the phenomenon of whistleblower retaliation and uh, tried to identify ways that organizations could become more whistleblower friendly and create what they call um, non retaliatory work environments which protect employees, and so they at a high level, they outlined four main factors that could help accomplish this. So the first one was having, um, ethics and compliance programs. So just having that baseline of, you know, what are our, what are our ethics as a company? We know what are the policies that, that everybody needs to comply with, um, having a strong ethical culture, which goes very much goes along with that. Um, having high standards of accountability that are applied consistently, um, and, and having positive management behaviors. So again, we're talking at a pretty high level here, um, you know, about, you know, sort of organizations in general, but I think maybe the more interesting piece of research I found was research that was done by uh, several, uh, several people out of the University of Michigan and Arizona State University. And they talked about the, the ability and responsibility of leaders within an organization. And this is where I think leaders have the, have the power to, to affect real change in this, um, in this arena. So these researchers conducted three different studies, and these these studies all looked at what you could think of as um, the whistleblower's level of power or authority within the organization. Um, So in other terms, whether they were uh, like a formal leader with a title who managed other people or or simply a peer to others, um, their relative status in the organization to others in the organization influenced how others responded to their whistleblowing actions. And so what these studies found were that um, people who were peers, uh, you know, who didn't have, like, the p- power or, or, you know, management ability over others, people who, who were peers who spoke up were viewed less positively than uh, people who were leaders who blew the whistle. So basically, not, not really a, hu- a very surprising outcome, but, you know, if you mm-hmm. have more power and you blow the whistle people are are less likely to uh, to frown upon upon your actions you know people respect their leaders a little bit more than their peers when it comes to calling out injustice within the organization but it was a takeaway of this research that i think is most important here and and i'll just quote from the from the study here one of the, one of the uh, the researchers who said quote leaders have a critical responsibility both to speak up and to create a culture where employees are accountable to one another and the organization to report any wrongdoing. Mm. And so that was one study. And and I came across other research that, um, that reached similar conclusions. Um, there was another uh, group of researchers from, from Boston college and Northwestern university argued that in order to quote, uh, as they said, motivate a broader swath of individuals toward whistleblowing organizations might focus on building the kind of community that values constructive dissent while maintaining group loyalty. So, but, uh-huh. Yeah, so based on these two studies, it's there's the strong implication that leaders have a special power and role here to foster the kind of culture mm-hmm. that um, that makes whistleblowing, you know, acceptable and, and even celebrated. And while acknowledging that there is this, there's going to be this dynamic, this interplay between, you know, truth and loyalty, which I think are the two f- almost right. fundamental um, elements that that are in tension and conflict when it comes to whistleblowing that it's up to leaders within an organization to, to foster, to create, to actively create a kind of culture that, that can balance those two, those two factors.
1: Right. So it's almost in your favor, you know, if you are going to blow the whistle
0: to, to maybe talk to your boss first and see if they can be the one to point it out. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, that's, I think that's, it it depends on the organization. Um, You know, if, if you, if, if the organization that you're in is one in which leaders have actively promoted and created a culture where whistleblowing is welcomed. And um, then, yeah, I would say that your you know, your boss is probably a good person to go to, assuming your boss is not the person you're blowing the whistle against. Um, But again, the onus, this is taking the onus and putting it on the organization, putting it on the leadership of an organization and not just the individuals who may experience or witness injustice or wrongdoing within that organization. It's saying, let's change the culture of our organizations. And so right. I think, you know, this is a this is a small thing that that can that can create some change and and make make whistleblowing a little maybe a little bit less of a dangerous proposition for for whistleblowers. Um, you know, and I don't I don't think that whistleblowing is ever going to be fully celebrated in all corners. Um, I, I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's just part of the reality of the the you know the deep human dynamics that are at play here. Um, but even if that's right. the case, I, I you know if if organizations decide that they're going to intentionally craft new norms that, that embrace this delicate balance between loyalty and dissent, loyalty and truth, um, that leaders mm-hmm. can build organizations that make whistleblowing a little bit more safer and a little bit more valued.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a cultural shift really that needs to happen, especially within the framework of, of these companies rather than, I mean, in combination with a lot of other things Absolutely. too. It yeah. Like. And, and, and as I say yeah. in my
0: article, it's, for organizations this is it's certainly no easy task it's easy to for you know for researchers to say okay this is what this is what leaders in organizations need to go go and do it's it's not it's not easy by any stretch but there's okay. arguably few more important tasks i think for today's organizations at the same time
1: absolutely absolutely well ray i just want to thank you again for for you know coming on the show talking about whistleblowing uh kind of going much more in depth with, with a lot of these issues. Um, I think this will be really interesting to, to anyone who's read the article, um, and even to those who haven't read the article. And if you, if you haven't read the article and you'd like to, again, uh, you can find that on our, uh, medium.com channel, which is medium.com slash hyperlink dash M a G. Um,
0: Ray, thanks again so much. David, thanks for having me. Um, it's a great conversation and yeah, go read the article. Um, and, uh, Yeah. This season on
1: Hyperlink Radio, we are sharing a link of the week at the end of each episode, which is an awesome corner of the internet that we've personally discovered. This week's link of the week is called the Most Dangerous Writing App. It really is the internet's most dangerous writing app in that if you stop typing, you lose everything you've written previously. So the key here is that you actually set a timer anywhere from three minutes to 60 minutes. Uh, You can even set a word count Uh, Target between 75 and 1,667 words, kind of a random number. There's actually a hardcore mode, too, in which you can't see what you're writing. The app actually blurs it out. The key here is that you just write, which is a good thing because if you're anyone like me, uh, stopping writing and backspacing and going back will only mean that you begin editing and if you're editing guess what you're not writing anymore are you so the most dangerous writing app will keep you on target for this set amount of time or again a select word count you can check it out at themostdangerouswritingapp.com we'll link to that in the show notes next week join hyperlink contributor mindy hollahan peters as she talks about bees why they're way more important than you realize in danger now and what you can do to help To find out more about Hyperlink Radio, visit hyperlinkradio.io, where you can find show notes, bonus content, links, and other episodes from Season 1 and 2. Stay connected to Hyperlink Radio and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or however you like to listen to podcasts. One more time, that's hyperlinkradio.io. Thanks again, and stay connected.